This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everybody, how are you today? This is Karki, and today I have with me Dr. Greg Ellerman. He has recently published a wonderful book, Thoughts Wilderness, about romantic poetry, and he has been very kind enough to come to me and talk to me today. Hello, Dr. Ellerman, how are you today? Hi, I'm good. Thanks for having me here. As always, I'd like to uh, begin by my typical first question, which is, how did this book come to be? What were some initial ideas when you started writing this book? Well, like most uh, first books, I think this developed out of my dissertation, uh, although it's not, uh, it's not a revision of my dissertation. Ultimately, I had to, you know, just rewrite the whole thing. Um, But, you know, I was interested for a long time, especially as a graduate student in, you know, debates, especially philosophical debates, uh, you know, debates in post-humanism, speculative realism, uh, the kind of broader critique of anthropocentric uh, thinking, sort of human-centered thinking. Um, A lot of this was, you know, kind of ongoing uh, in the early years of uh, my my PhD, and I was really, you know, kind of fascinated by the whole thing. Uh, I had a, you know, background in continental philosophy and uh, was, you know, interested in, in these kind of theoretical conversations. And so, you know, this was one of the sort of, um, yeah, real inspirations from for my PhD work. Uh, and, you know, ultimately, as time went on, I, I realized I needed to think more about the kind of political aspects or sort of political repercussions, right, of this sort of, uh, you know, critique of, of the human, this sort of resistance to anthropocentrism uh, that, you know, I think we saw really kind of across the theoretical uh, humanities in, you know, the early 2000s and afterwards. Uh, and so, yeah, the book kind of came out of that, a sort of effort to really understand uh, in more sort of strictly political terms, what it means to, you know, affirm that the human being or human uh, uh, desires or purposes, right, might not be the kind of ultimate value. And so, you know, in some sense, I've moved away pretty far from uh, those conversations. They're, you know, not as, uh, 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 you know, sort of uh, important to me as they as they once were, the sort of broad uh, post-human uh, perspective is something I've yeah, kind of turned away from a little bit for a variety of reasons. But um, yeah, that was certainly the initial uh, genesis of the project, I would say. 
if I can take the liberty of asking, why did you move away? I mean, because this this is the this is a cool thing in academia. Mm-hmm. All of those dehuman, post-human, yeah, human perspectives. Yeah, I'm you know still interested on some level, but uh, I think you know many uh, kind of came to this conclusion, and I certainly did at a certain point that uh, you know not only was there not uh, sufficient attention being given to the kind of political dimension of these claims, right? But that, uh, you know, there was a kind of active hostility uh, to to politics in certain circles. Um, And, you know, when certain writers in the kind of speculative realist or sort of uh, post-humanist, you know, world uh, did turn to politics, you know, to my mind, the results were, you know, extraordinarily uh, uh, sort of unsatisfying. Um, And so, yeah, my, my sense was that, you know, ultimately there was some kind of uh, you know, problem, I would say, with the questions uh, that, that, that uh, you know, we were asking. Um, there was a, a kind of limit that I think many in that world were encountering um, that, yeah, couldn't really be overcome from within the sort of terms of that debate, perhaps. Okay. Um, and I, I started um, with your initial ideas, and then that leads me very nicely to the title of this book, which is Thoughts Wilderness. And it explores the topic of uh, environmental criticism and romanticism. Mm-hmm. And if if I have understood correctly, this is um, the, the the point of the book is to challenge the way we think about nature and culture as nature opposed to culture, as opposed to human being. And on all of um, these activities like thinking, processing, responding, are thought to be associated with the human and the culture part and not the nature part, um, mm-hmm. which is something that we can also question. But I really like the way you have framed the title is um, the thoughts wilderness as if our own thoughts had some kind of nature in them. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if this is something that y- you were thinking, but maybe you could like to comment on what were your ideas behind the title that he chose. Yeah, the the title comes from Percy Shelley. Uh, It's a a phrase that I've borrowed from Prometheus Unbound. Um, And, you know, for me, it does a a variety of things. I think the title does do some important work. Uh, You know, I would say the kind of primary sense that the title has is to to try to describe uh, a particular sort of state of consciousness that I'm tracing throughout the book which, you know, I describe it in a variety of ways. It's a kind of aesthetic stance. It's also a sort of ethical or political one, I would say. Um, But in some ways, right, it's a a kind of uh, state of consciousness that I see as kind of, uh, you know, central to a lot of romantic thinking about the relationship between uh, the mind and the natural world or between consciousness and the natural world. And it's a, a state of mind or a state of consciousness, right, that tries to uh, you know, get beyond uh, the sort of hierarchical or or sort of uh, potentially even kind of violent or appropriative relation to the natural world that I think the romantics are pretty good, uh, you know, at diagnosing, right, as a sort of basic part of our, uh, you know, relation to, to, to nature. Um, so, you know, in Shelley, uh, and I think in romanticism more broadly, this kind of condition, uh, you know, the state of inhabiting what I'm calling thoughts wilderness really is an effort to sort of suspend or kind of get beyond this kind of logic of, of domination. 
you know, the book as a whole, right, is really about the kind of relation between nature and consciousness. That's the fundamental uh, problem that it's addressing. And it's a problem that, you know, has been central to romantic studies for, for decades. I do think in recent years, it's kind of, you know, fallen off the, the map a little bit, despite the kind of resurgence of, of eco-criticism in, in romantic studies. And yeah, I mean, I was interested really in just kind of going back to some of the key texts in, in romantic studies that, that pose this question for the first time. Um, so these are, you know, critical texts from the 50s and 60s that I'm returning to uh, and trying to think about the way that that question is, is, is formulated, right, and the ways in which there might be a kind of ethics or a sort of politics underlying uh, really just the kind of very formulation of that, that question. So yeah, I mean, that's something that really does kind of run throughout the book. Um, in terms of like the relation between nature and culture or nature and the human that you were asking about, I mean, I understand this in a, in a variety of ways. And this is, you know, one of the ways in which the kind of uh, post-humanist sort of speculative realist perspective still continues to uh, inform my thought. I mean, I, I do think there is a kind of necessity to think nature um, you know, at first or initially, right, at least apart from uh, its uh, uh, relation to, to human beings or human uh, purposes or human uses, um, there is a, a kind of significance to that that I think, you know, kind of remains. Um, and, you know, there are different ways to think about this. In in the book, I use a phrase or a term uh, from, from Adorno, uh, this kind of category of non-identity that he articulates uh, really throughout his later work um, as a way of thinking about this kind of difference, right, or this sort of, um, you know, uh, uh, distance even uh, between nature and, and the human. Um, you know, the next move, right, and this, I think, is the move that you know, uh, often is not made in uh, uh, post-humanism or speculative realism, right, is to try to then put, you know, nature and culture and nature and consciousness, uh, to try to put those things like back into relation with one another, right, beginning from the fact of their difference or non-identity. So there's a kind of like dialectical relation that I think does have to be established, uh, ultimately, you know, you, you need that relation, right? And that's just like, uh, you know, I think something that... Uh, yeah, is sort of like a, a, a true fact about the world. Of course, there are uh, uh, relations, right? Um, but they have to begin from like, the acknowledgement of difference. Uh, and so, um, yeah, I think that's part of what I'm trying to articulate in, in theoretical terms anyway. There's also another topic um, that has to be addressed, and especially that we are talking about this in 2024, um, where I largely accept that if I'm not going to die in all of these wars that are going on, I won't <laughs> my life or would see a very terrible end of my life because of um, climate change and how hot this is every summer is becoming. Yeah. Um, a nice uh, cheery perspective. <laughs> it's true. I mean, I mean, think about it. it yeah, it does feel very apocalyptic. I'm not sure if it, this is mm -hmm. because of the kind of information that loop that I have got to on social media, or or the fact that. Um, but it, it's difficult to avoid mm -hmm. uh, to see every year the kind of changes. For example, yeah. the city I'm living in is not what it is like four years ago when I first mm -hmm. came, and and the change is so drastic. Um, that it's difficult to ignore this. Yeah, uh, that's yeah it's, it's a disaster. You're right. 
that's what I mean. Um, mm. and, and at this time, for example, we as literary scholars, we are not just talking about uh, uh, literary uh, nature writing or environmental criticism, but we also are going back to the canons. Um, mm -hmm. Criticism comes here. And so that's the elephant in the room. Why the romantics? when we are today talking about environmental criticism or nature writing or all of those terms that we have. Yeah, I mean, part of my interest in romanticism, I mean, you know, it's dispositional, I think, on, on some level, but uh, at least in, you know, kind of theoretical or even political terms, you know, I would say there's no moment in the kind of history of European literature uh, in any case, and this is, you know, what I, what I know. Um, there's no moment, you know, in which nature is more kind of central as a category, right? Uh, it is, you know, the uh, basic term, right, of, of romantic uh, thought uh, and, and romantic literary production. And so, you know, to think uh, really seriously about uh, uh, these questions, right, uh, the relation between consciousness and nature, the sort of, you know, ethical status of our relations to the natural world, uh, the politics of nature, you know, to think seriously about these questions, you have to go back to romanticism. It's just the place to, to start. Um, you know, it's also important to me, too, I would say that the kind of category of nature uh, is central to, to romanticism. Um, you know, there's been a big turn in uh, the environmental humanities and eco-criticism. Uh, there's been a big turn away from nature as a, as a category or as a unit of analysis, uh, you know, really since the, I would say since the 80s even, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, most I would say most kind of pressingly in the last uh, sort of 20 years or most sort of um, powerfully in the last 20 years. Uh, and so part of what I'm interested in, right, is in kind of getting back to uh, a, a kind of fuller understanding of this romantic category uh, of, you know, nature and, and thinking about like why that term itself was so important both to the romantics, right, and why it still might be kind of important to us today. Um, you know, again, I think there are limitations to the kind of post-humanist uh, sort of ecological or kind of object-oriented perspective, uh, however you want to describe it. Um, there are certain questions that I think just can't really be formulated from within that that standpoint. Uh, and I do think nature is an important, uh, yeah, an important term, right, an important unit of analysis for sort of breaking out of that, that, that deadlock. Uh, and so, um, yeah, I mean, this is part of what what romanticism offers us. Historically speaking, right, uh, you know, this is the moment of the beginning of the, uh, you know, kind of industrial revolution, or at least um, uh, the, the kind of industrial revolution that really, uh, you know, successfully reshapes the sort of face of the globe. Um, you know, it's the moment of uh, imperialism, uh, or at least, again, the uh, sort of early decades. Um, it is, yeah, uh, you know, uh, a, a kind of pivotal historical and political moment that I think, uh, you know, we're still living in the uh, uh, sort of, uh, yeah, aftermath of, we're still living through the effects of. Uh, and so, you know, from this perspective, too, I mean, I think romanticism is the perfect place uh, to look, uh, again, for for alternatives, really, to these, um, you know, sort of historical trajectories. Yeah. And this book is not just about 
the, the literary history of romantics and um, um, niche writing. This is also about Marx's critical theory. Mm -hmm. and, um, and this is, again, a very interesting link that you're making um, between nature and romantic nature as rom uh, romantic poets understood and uh, and Marxism, which, um, and ignore me for my <laughs> graduate level ignorance, but in the fact that I have come across them together mm -hmm. often, at least in the classroom. Mm -hmm. um, a stereotypical way, and I wrote this in in the email to you also. A stereotypical way of thinking about the romantics as um, someone, people who have escaped London and all the metropoles and running mm -hmm. Switzerland and living in cabins. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, Marxism is in in a very simplistic way then associated with all that is urban. Mm -hmm. the, and, and this division between the rich and poor in, in a very industrial urban center. And I, I'm not sure if it's true. I tried to Google and find this story, but I, I remember being told that um, Rousseau uh, once went to the gates of Paris, but he gets scared. And then he comes running back to Switzerland because <laughs> the urban was so strange to him. Mm -hmm. What I'm what I'm trying to give with these examples is there is this assumed difference or tension between the two, the romantics and the nature writing and Marxism. Mm -hmm. And um, maybe you could enlighten us as, and tell us that they have been linked intimately in history or the fact that this is a novelty that you um, have you have thought it necessary? And if so, then the reasons for doing that? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, Marxism does have a kind of uh, presence in the field of romantic studies. Uh, I think I'm doing something, you know, maybe slightly different with it uh, than, you know, some of the kind of more influential and sort of, uh, you know, significant Marxist readings of, of romanticism. Uh, you know, I think here about the work of, you know, Marjorie Levinson or Jerome McGann uh, in the 1980s and 1990s, um, the, the uh, you know, kind of new historicist uh, sort of uh, camp, I would say, in, in romantic studies um, is certainly uh, a kind of Marxist uh, uh, kind of grouping. Uh, I mean, this is a reading of, of romanticism from the standpoint of a certain Marxism. Um, you know, at the same time, I would say the approach is pretty different from my own, in part because, for the new historicism, Marxism provides a set of tools to critique romanticism, uh, essentially as a kind of expression of ideology. And this is, you know, uh, Jerome McGann's famous uh, uh, account of the romantic ideology uh, that, that I have in mind here. Um, my approach is a little bit different, right, in part because I'm trying to use uh, the tools of Marxist critical theory as a way of like drawing out what's already uh, sort of uh, perhaps implicit, right, what's perhaps underdeveloped, but what's already said uh, by the romantics themselves. And so in some sense, I'm not looking at romanticism as an expression of ideology as a sort of uh, state of false consciousness, right. Um, but I'm trying to think about uh, 
you know, what the romantics were actually arguing, right? And to, to sort of treat them as if they, you know, kind of knew what they were doing, basically, and, and, and uh, you know, to treat them as if they actually had, you know, important political uh, things to say, right, that, you know, kind of went beyond the sort of logic of like repression or disavowal, or ideology, false consciousness, the, these terms that I think are often used to describe uh, romanticism from a sort of Marxist perspective. So, you know, for me, again, I think Marxism and Marxist categories are a helpful way of, you know, making explicit or kind of clarifying some of the things that might be uh, sort of overlooked, right, or kind of latent, right, in some of these romantic conversations, romantic texts. You know, there's a, a few reasons, I think, why this works so well. Uh, you know, for one thing, Marx himself had kind of roots in, in romanticism. He, uh, you know, studied uh, as, a, as a university student with some of the great uh, romantics from the previous <clears throat> generation. He was, you know, a student of August Schlegel's. Uh, so there are, you know, direct connections, obviously, to be, to be drawn here. Uh, Marx's earliest writings are really informed by romanticism, by philo philosophical romanticism in particular, I would say. But, you know, he was a poet to start. Uh, this is kind of well-known and uh, a romantic poet at that. So, you know, there are plenty of things to be said about this, this connection. You know, I think it, in a lot of ways, uh, I mean, your your question is a good one, right? Like Marxism, of course, is often read as a sort of theory of the working class, right? Or of the exploitation of the working class. And it, you know, I think is that, of course, on some level. Um, there is also, uh, I, you know, I would just insist, and I think this is, you know, something that's been given quite a lot of attention in, in recent years. Uh, there's a pretty robust theory of nature in Marxism as well. Um, and again, here, I think this kind of resonates with the romantic theory or sort of approach to, to nature uh, in ways that, yeah, again, um, the use of Marxism or the kind of turn to Marxism can really make explicit, right? I think some of the political uh, repercussions of romantic thinking about nature. Um, there's a lot of dialogue and a lot of interest in uh, what's been called the kind of theory of metabolic rift in, in Marxism, uh, this sort of idea that there is a kind of inherent dialectical relation between nature and the human species, between nature and, and work or labor in particular, right? And that there's a kind of metabolism, right, between uh, human life, human forms of life and the natural world. Um, but that at a certain point, right, uh, exploitation, the exploitation of nature in particular, uh, simply becomes too extreme, right? And this metabolism starts to break down. This is a, a theory that I think one certainly can uh, derive from uh, elements of Marx's thought. Um, I think it's a theory that really does, uh, again, sort of clarify or draw out a lot of what's at stake in this kind of uh, uh, interest in romanticism uh, in, you know, Hegel, in uh, Shelley, I think, to a certain extent as well. Uh, this interest right in the relation, again, between nature and, and human consciousness, between nature and human social life, um, th this sense, right, that the kind of integral sort of organic or metabolic relation here uh, between nature and, and human life that's so essential, um, that, that, that there's a limit point, right, that this kind of relation can, can reach. Uh, a kind of limit point at which, again, uh, 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 the rift uh, sort of opens up, right? Things start to, to, to break down, things start to become unsustainable. Um, I think the romantics sense this, they feel it pretty powerfully. And I think Marx really gives us the most kind of explicit sort of theoretical account of this, this rift. 
uh, and this is you know work that's been done for quite a long time in, in Marxism. Um, these are like corners of Marxism, I would say, that have not necessarily been uh, uh, that influential uh, to, to literary studies. But uh, you know, most recently, uh, we have you know Marxist uh, thinkers like Andreas Malm, uh, Kohei Saito, uh, really important uh, uh, philosophers and social theorists who are uh, you know kind of insisting on on the importance of this this sort of uh, perspective in ways that you know to my mind really resonates very strongly uh, with with the claims of the Romantics themselves. Yeah, and. Um... I, I was surprised at the turn of the phrase you you were answering and talking about um, um, the romantics and say let's say they knew what they were doing. Mm -hmm. Why did you put it like that? Well, I, I mean, again, I think for a long time there's been a sort of assumption that uh, at least again from certain kind of politically inflected corners of the field, there's been a, a, an assumption that. Uh, you know, romantic poetry may be beautiful, right? But in some sense, it's a kind of uh, uh, illusion, right? It's a beautiful illusion, right? It's a sort of escape, uh, a kind of escapist fantasy um, from history, right? From from the history that that hurts, right? In the sort of classic new historicist sense. Um, my intuition, right, is that this cannot be the only thing uh, the romantics were, were doing, right? Uh, to just sort of indulge in a kind of escapist fantasy seems a pretty uh, limiting description of, uh, you know, a kind of entire era of, uh, you know, literary and philosophical uh, production. And so part of what I wanted to do was just to sort of think about uh, the romantics as, um, you know, sort of intentionally posing and trying to like wrestle with these sorts of questions, these, uh, again, ethical and political political questions about nature, um, rather than just to, you know, see them as kind of running away from these, these problems. Uh, and so, um, you know, in some ways, this is where Marxism comes in. It's actually, I think, one of the things that's very useful about earlier criticism on, on romantic uh, poetry and, and philosophy. Uh, you know, the work of, you know, M.H. Abrams, Jeffrey Hartman, this, this kind of, you know, field-defining work from the, the 50s and the 60s, um, in some ways, right, there's a perspective there that's much more kind of sympathetic, right, and much more uh, sort of uh, generous, right, in its reading of, you know, poets like Wordsworth as like genuinely wrestling with philosophical and political questions. Uh, yeah, so I think that's, um, you know, another thing that, uh, you know, for me has been been really important, just going back to these foundational texts. Mm -hmm. Um, and if we come to the, um, the the chapters in the book, the first chapters is about these um, discrete features of romanticism, and if I can put it like that, and mm -hmm. one of these um, differences was between nature and wilderness. And these have been um, these notions or these words have been used in different places in your book, and. If I could ask for the sake of the listeners, what is the difference between these two for the romantics? There are different ways, I would say, of, of thinking about the relation between these terms. For me, wilderness is more interesting as a kind of category of, of human thought, oddly enough. And again, as I said before, I'm kind of following Percy Shelley in this. Um, you know, again, to think about thoughts wilderness, right, as a sort of category of uh, human thought, a sort of state of consciousness, right, again, that tries to get out of this relation of domination or exploitation that, you know, I think the romantics are pretty 
uh, attuned to. Um, this is one of the things that for him, you know, thoughts wilderness signifies, right? This effort to kind of relate differently uh, to, to the natural world. So, yeah, I think that's one, you know, way to think about that sort of terminology in romanticism more broadly, right? I mean, wilderness as a kind of aspect of the natural world is, of course, uh, you know, part of uh, uh, the kind of discourse. It's certainly part of the the kind of framework. Um, you know, there's a lot of work done on this topic. You know, I think here about the the work of, of Kate Rigby, another uh, romantic uh, scholar, a uh, scholar of eco-criticism more broadly, too, uh, who you know, writes really uh, kind of interestingly about the sort of status of wild nature in, in romantic thought and romantic literature. And, you know, for her, wild nature simply uh, means nature uh, understood as self-willed, self-directing, right? Uh, to, to have a kind of force or a sort of vitality of its own that, again, is not given to it by, by human beings or by human practices. And I think this is a, a good working definition of, of the term. Um, in Kant as well, uh, on the philosophical side, right, uh, wild nature has a very important status in his aesthetics, where it simply refers, right, to uh, uh, forms or appearances in nature that haven't yet been subsumed under a concept, right, forms of nature uh, that we essentially don't quite know how to understand fully when we when we first encounter them. And this, uh, again, kind of encounter with uh, a certain sort of like incomprehension, uh, with a certain kind of difference. Um, yeah, I think this is a big part of what I'm trying to get at as well. So yeah, I mean, wilderness kind of works on on both sides here, right? It's it's part of uh, uh, consciousness, right? In Shelley's kind of sense of the term, but it's also something that we encounter and kind of come up against in nature. Yeah. And, and coming back to climate change, my favorite topic. Sure. <laughs> Is that, for example, romantics are not just about the poets of nature, but as you have been talking about the poets of imagination, mm -hmm. imagination, and you have mentioned in this book, uh, is apocalyptic. And um, I wonder why is that? And if, for example, um, this apocalyptic imagination, similar to what we understand as, for example, like um the the end of the world or 2012 which which did not happen in the climate change debate or or something different yeah i mean the interest in apocalypse and in romanticism is is interesting and certainly like from our own moment it it reads uh really kind of uh interestingly and ominously right as a sort of uh you know anticipation of of, of what's to come you know, in the work of, of Jeffrey Hartman, I mean, I think this is where the kind of term apocalypse or the apocalyptic imagination in particular, uh, this is probably where it receives like its fullest articulation. And here he's he's thinking about Wordsworth. He's thinking about these moments in, in Wordsworth uh, where imagination appears as this kind of overwhelming power, right? A sort of state of consciousness um, that, you know, kind of uh, annihilates everything in its path. This is the sort of famous argument of, of Hartman's book on, on Wordsworth. Uh, imagination uh, uh, appears, it feels as if it appears out of nowhere, right? And uh, in some sense, kind of obliterates the natural world, right? It sort of remakes everything in its own image. Uh, and it has this kind of incredibly destructive force, right? It's sort of a, a vehicle of transcendence, but also a, a kind of tool for, for destruction in some sense. And, you know, this, uh, again, 
you know, it reads quite uh, uh, interestingly in our in our time. Uh, Hartman, you know, himself in the, in the 70s, right, looking back on his Wordsworth book, uh, suggested that, you know, there was some kind of dim uh, uh, sort of possibility, right, some sort of uh, undeveloped link, perhaps, between uh, this kind of vision of romanticism, this vision of imagination and Wordsworth, um, and, and, you know, what he called the trauma of industrialization, right? He said, it seems like there must be some connection, right, between Wordsworth's sense uh, of imagination is so potentially destructive, right? And the kind of reshaping, the violent reshaping of nature that was going on around him uh, in, in in kind of real time at this point. Uh, so, so you know, Hartman himself draws this, this out. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's a suggestive connection. And, and it was something that I was trying to explore, uh, you know, in more detail in this first chapter of the book, right, to think about the way, uh, again, that this account of uh, imagination at its most apocalyptic, right, might say something about, uh, again, the kind of romantic sense that, you know, our relations to nature are um, you know, uh, 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 perhaps, uh, uh, you know, based on a certain kind of uh, uh, domination, right, that there is a certain violence, right, that can kind of emerge in the course of our engagement with the natural world. Um, but also that there are like alternatives, right, there are different ways of kind of comprehending or sort of approaching uh, the natural world. So there are, uh, of course, apocalyptic possibilities in romanticism, right, these kind of world transforming possibilities. Uh, but there are also ways of being in nature that's sort of uh, fall beneath or, or sort of get outside of the uh, logic of, of the apocalyptic. And, you know, Wordsworth is the great case study here, right? Uh, there's the apocalyptic imagination, and then there's the kind of uh, unremarkable Wordsworth, right, as Hartman also puts it, uh, the Wordsworth who uh, attends very carefully to these, uh, you know, sort of overlooked aspects of, of nature, uh, these kind of surprise encounters that he has no control over. Uh, and so, you know, in Wordsworth himself, right, we see a real kind of uh, push and pull between these two, these two tendencies. Uh, and yeah, I guess my my interest in the uh, apocalyptic, right, uh, kind of came out of a, uh, yeah, an effort to like, yeah, um, really think seriously, right, about how this sort of uh, theory of imagination, right, might, um, you know, might have a real historical grounding, as, as Hartman himself suggested. Um, and moving on to Kant, you uh, explain this in this book, how you understand his writing using specific keywords through the mm -hmm. I, I when I was reading, I was following these keywords throughout the chapter, and um, and I found them very helpful. At the same time, very surprising because nature um, is is different, but linked to natural history the way he understand it, and also mm -hmm. which is different than uh, what I was expecting nature would be linked to. And for the sake of people who are listening, if you uh, could you explain in short what is different and link between these three terms, nature, natural history, and time, and what does this imply for his understanding of the environment? And I'm using all of these terms a little bit loosely because... That's, yeah, fine. <laughs> because yeah. it's <laughs> close and different in what we understand mm -hmm. today. Yeah, I mean, ter terminology is like the first uh, uh, hurdle uh, that one encounters as a reader of Kant. And so, yeah, I mean, these are these are very important questions. Uh, it, you know, in part, the difficulty comes out of, uh, you know, sort of slight or subtle differences, right, between uh, 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 
you know, usages of very similar uh, seeming, seeming categories. Uh, as you said, nature, natural history, wild nature, these are terms that, you know, show up throughout Kant's work and they, you know, all mean slightly different things. Um, there are these kind of subtle distinctions of usage and meaning that are, I think are really, really uh, important. You know, I mentioned before wild nature, uh, especially in the critique of judgment. This is Kant's third uh, sort of major uh, work of systematic philosophy. Uh, wild nature has a really kind of important status here as, uh, again, nature uh, 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 in its sort of uh, not yet comprehended form, right? This is nature uh, uh, in uh, unrecognized, in surprising, in sort of, uh, yeah, not yet kind of determined ways. Uh, and so this is a category that I'm certainly interested in. But the, the chapter on Kant actually kind of goes back to some of his earlier works. It sort of, you know, works its way through the earlier writings on natural history and into the first critique, uh, the critique of pure reason, um, to think a little bit about the way nature functions there, because I think there are, uh, yeah, again, kind of important political uh, repercussions to this thinking of nature as well, uh, in ways that are, you know, maybe slightly less obvious, right, than the theory of wild nature from from later on, uh, but that I think are no less uh, significant, in part because, you know, for Kant, this is all taking place on the terrain of consciousness, right, or under the rubric of a theory of, of human consciousness, at least this is ultimately where he where he ends up. I mean, there are different ways to kind of break this down. <clears throat> I would just say basically that uh, in, in Kant's critical philosophy, uh, there's a kind of theory of space time. Uh, and these, you know, two terms have to be uh, sort of taken together. Ultimately, uh, time, I would say is more fundamental than than space for him. But this is a matter of, uh, you know, disagreements, sort of strong disagreement in, in, in Kant studies. Uh, but but basically, to think about this very kind of abstract, very minimal theory of space time as, uh, in some sense, the basis uh, for an account of what he calls nature in general, uh, this is a, a kind of, uh, you know, crucial first element, right, in sort of understanding what he's what he's up to. By nature in general, uh, Kant does not really mean like a kind of fully articulated theory of the natural world. He basically means uh, a very, very kind of minimal account of the necessary categories that one would need to assume in order to say anything about nature at all, right? In order to have a kind of minimally coherent picture of, of nature, right? So nature in general is a very, very thin category for him. And so part of what he's exploring in his earlier works and even into the first uh, critique, the critique of pure reason, uh, part of what he's exploring, right, is how this kind of very thin, very minimal account of nature in general can be uh, reconciled with a more kind of robust account of natural history. Natural history for Kant, you know, means something uh, uh, sort of similar to the way that we kind of understand the term today, right? A, an account of nature as basically uh, coming out of a, a sort of long trajectory, a long history uh, of, of uh, you know, geological and biological processes, essentially. Um, Kant has a, a pretty uh, kind of full sense, right, of this sort of historical side of the natural world, right? He's interested in, you know, what we would now call deep time, uh, sort of time uh, before the emergence of human beings, right? Time uh, uh, before perhaps even the emergence of any kind of life form at all. Uh, and so, you know, part of what Khan is asking, right, is how can this kind of sense, right, of, of, of nature as, uh, you know, formed by a kind of ancient history, how can this kind of line up 
with uh, 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 the other account of nature that he gives, right, which is this account of nature as sort of based on a, a kind of necessary set of assumptions, right, about the categories, about the forms that we need to assume in order to make any claim about the natural world in the first place, right? Can these things be made to sort of sit side by side? This is the, the problem for him. Ultimately, right, I don't think he can actually uh, uh, pull this off. And this is part of what the chapter is about. Um, there is something, you know, basically incompatible, right, uh, about assuming, uh, again, um, that, you know, nature can only be understood from within the perspective of, uh, uh, you know, the categories of the understanding, the forms of intuition, and so forth, um, to, to sort of assume this whole kind of apparatus, right, this whole sort of apparatus that is consciousness for him. Uh, to assume this, right, is to sort of say that, you know, uh, we're going to have to basically bracket the question of deep time. Ancient history uh, for Kant uh, is not really going to be po uh, possibly made uh, compatible, right, uh, with uh, uh, this kind of sense of, of consciousness and this sense of the natural world. Uh, and so part of what I'm doing in this first chapter, right, is kind of just tracing his sort of constant coming back to this question or this problem, right, of reconciling these two different perspectives or these two different approaches to nature. And, uh, you know, really, for me, what this demonstrates, ultimately, right, is uh, in Kant, you know, the kind of great thinker of, of human consciousness, of, of subjectivity at its most sort of abstract, and in some ways at its most kind of romantic. Um, you know, what I see here, right, is a sort of sense that, you know, uh, consciousness is the uh, sine qua non, right? It's the, the sort of, um, you know, the ultimate term in his, his thought, in some ways. Uh, and yet, at the same time, there's always kind of a sense that there's something that escapes this consciousness, right? There's always something in the natural world, right, that can't quite be grasped, right, or can't quite be subsumed underneath the kind of categories or concepts uh, that define consciousness for him. And so this, this basic tension, right, on a kind of philosophical level, uh, for me, it, it sort of demonstrates and it kind of sets the tone uh, for the romantic thinking that, that follows, right? This effort to, you know, on the one hand, uh, sort of think about the relation between consciousness and nature, but also to acknowledge, again, that there's something outside of that, right? Something maybe fundamentally kind of ungraspable or something that, that escapes uh, those, those laws or categories of consciousness, and so that, uh, that I think ultimately is what Kant shows uh, for me. Yeah, and this, this struggle leads very nicely into the next topic of Wollstonecraft. Uh, mm -hmm. um, you said that, I mean, you wrote that anthropomorphism is central to, to understanding the 18th century conceptualization of nature. Mm -hmm. And um, if I could ask you uh, to elaborate on why was that um, also because of this tension between um, imagination in, in conceptualization and the nature, as we have been talking about Kant in itself as something beyond that. Mm -hmm. and, and I, and this is a very important topic uh, because today we would think precisely the opposite of it. We would say, well, thinking like this is exactly what we don't need. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think Wollstonecraft in a lot of ways, as you're suggesting, is asking similar questions to Kant, but from uh, a slightly different perspective, uh, not the perspective, right, of transcendental idealism, right? But in Wollstonecraft, or at least in the texts I'm concerned with, uh, she's thinking about these questions from the perspective of poetics, right? And she gives us a pretty uh, kind of elaborate 
theory of anthropomorphism uh, in, uh, you know, a variety of critical essays uh, in her Scandinavian letters, which is a really fascinating text that I'm, I'm focused on uh, uh, in part in the, the chapter. Um, a theory of anthropomorphism Right. As a way of uh, kind of understanding, again, the relationship between consciousness and nature, human consciousness and nature, um, but also with a kind of more sort of fully developed social dimension. I think this is a big part of uh, Wollstonecraft's thought. Uh, and here, you know, she's drawing on a whole kind of tradition of uh, debates in 18th century poetics and uh, debates about the origin of language. Right. She's looking back to Rousseau, to, to Hugh Blair, um, these, these thinkers who, you know, argue pretty insistently, right, that anthropomorphism is in some ways like the origin of poetic language, right? It's like something that they uh, kind of trace back to the beginnings of human expression, human creative expression. Um, it's the beginning of poetry for them, but it's also uh, the beginning of a certain kind of cultivation of the natural world, right? To anthropomorphize nature is to begin sort of setting the conditions of possibility uh, for its cultivation, for its humanization, basically, as they as they understand it. And so part of what Wollstonecraft is doing, right, I would say is synthesizing a lot of these theories of, of anthropomorphism, but also in, uh, you know, ways that I do think resonates with uh, Kant's thought. Um, she's interested in like what escapes or what can't really be captured, right, by the anthropomorphization or sort of humanization of, of nature. Uh, and so throughout the Scandinavian letters, you see the same tension, right, a kind of attention on the one hand uh, to, um, you know, the kind of relation between uh, uh, human language, human thought, and nature, uh, the anthropomorphization of nature, right, as, as Wollstonecraft has it, um, but also this sense, right, that there's something potentially unsuccessful about that, right, that there are ways in which that process of, of cultivation or humanization, uh, that process fails, right, for, for her. Uh, and yeah, I think there's something very important about that, about that failure in her thought. And what is important about that failure? Well, essentially that it, it, you know, kind of opens up a space, right, for for something to to escape, right, for for something in nature, uh, again, to to escape uh, uh, cultivation, right, to escape uh, our, our efforts, maybe to, uh, you know, kind of transform it into uh, raw materials, right? Um, she's, you know, a kind of poetic theorist. She's a kind of political economist in these texts as well, I think, in really uh, important ways. Um, she's really sort of fascinated by the, the sort of process of, uh, you know, kind of deforestation by uh, sort of uh, mining, right? There's like these elaborate descriptions of mining in Scandinavia and the sort of destruction of, of, of uh, you know, the natural world that this sort of um, you know, resource extraction uh, entails. Uh, and so for her, like all of these very concrete sort of political economic processes are totally bound up with the poetic process of anthropomorphism or anthropomorphization. Uh, and so, you know, again, for her, uh, if, if something uh, uh, gets away, right, if something escapes, right, if there is, you know, again, uh, a part of the natural world, right, that can't quite be grasped in this sort of fashion. Um, yeah, I think for her, that's, uh, that's, a, that's a good thing, right? Um, She's, you know, relatively despairing in some sense. The Scandinavian Letters is a famously, you know, melancholy text. It's, uh, uh, you know, not not a, yeah, not not a not a feel gooder. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think there is this kind of dimension, right? Uh, uh, that I think is worth hanging on to. This kind of sense that uh, that again, not not everything uh, kind of gives itself over to us or can be kind of taken over by us. Yeah. And um, coming back to Marxism, I, mm -hmm. I understood why 
for example, Marxism in this book when I read your chapter on Hegel. Yeah. Um, and this chapter for, for me was particularly engaging. Um, and to, if you allow me to sum up in my own words, uh, you are suggesting that Hegel's um, negative view on industrialization was um, a result of his instrumental attitude towards nature and the culture of reflection as he understood it. Mm -hmm. Is this um, a very simplistic one-line summary wrong? <laughs> no, uh, I mean, I think that's that's the crucial move that, that Hegel makes, right, is to sort of connect uh, the kind of emergent sort of industrial forms of labor that he sees uh, around him. Uh, you know, there's some kind of uh, trace of this in, in, in uh, Western continental Europe at the time that Hegel's writing. There's a lot more happening in England, and Hegel's really, you know, kind of steeped in the same sort of political economic text texts that Wollstonecraft is is reading, the same debates she's participating in, uh, I would say Hegel is very concerned with uh, as well. Um, so yeah, to, to kind of connect this uh, sort of emergent industrialization uh, with, uh, yeah, what Hegel calls reflection, this is a kind of philosophical term for him. It's a philosophical term that also has, uh, you know, kind of social forms or social repercussions, as he argues. Uh, but in some ways, you know, part of what I'm doing here, right, is really just to kind of extend the argument of the Kant chapter into a more explicitly uh, social political direction. And this is Hegel's move, basically, is to say that, you know, Kant gives us this theory of consciousness, right, this theory of consciousness as basically reflective, right, as sort of defined uh, by its own kind of uh, reflection on its capacities, right, like consciousness uh, has to assume all sorts of laws, all sorts of categories, and it derives them by way of self-reflection. It has this kind of recursive dimension um, that's the basis for, for everything. Uh, Hegel points to this and says there's something about this kind of uh, theory of reflection, right, that uh, uh, not only makes like the natural world secondary to it, but sets it up as material for for domination and for exploitation. This is this is Hegel's claim. So you know when Kant sort of constantly tries to like grasp uh, uh, the natural world, sort of bring it uh, underneath his his categories to kind of subsume it in this sort of way. Uh, for Hegel, right, this is like the philosophical expression uh, of precisely what's taking place, right, as industrialization sort of gets going, as it sort of sets itself in motion. Um, there's some. Thing, um, you know, not just like analogous, but for Hegel, there's something like intimately linked, right, about this, this uh, uh, sort of uh, coincidence, again, of uh, philosophy on the one hand, uh, and, and the reshaping of labor or, or work, uh, the exploitation of nature, uh, in particular, on, on the other, these things are, you know, part and parcel of the same uh, culture for him. Um, so this is part of what I'm doing in the Hegel chapter, right, is to just sort of say uh, that, yeah, Hegel makes really, really concrete, I would say, the kind of political stakes of a, a sort of reflective theory of, of subjectivity or consciousness. And all of these thinkers and poets, um, of, all, all, of all of them um, discussed in the book, for, for me, Wordsworth is perhaps the most commonly known and mm -hmm. ideas I believe had the most extended life. Um, and um, especially because um, how nature for him is 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 a place where 
um, you can get out of your own consciousness, so to say, and, and open up to the world and apprehend things to realize that you have consciousness. Um, and probably I am here blaming Wordsworth for not looking at nature as nature, something mm -hmm. aside, but as a proof of his own consciousness. Mm -hmm. um, am I correct in this reading of your discussion? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I spoke about this a little bit before, but I mean, ultimately, there are two very powerful tendencies in Wordsworth's poetry, one that we could associate with the apocalyptic imagination that we were discussing before. And this, I think, is exactly what you're describing, right? This way in which, uh, you know, imagination kind of takes over the natural world and, you know, maybe sort of transforms it to its own purposes, sort of remakes it as it as it will. Uh, you know, there's the great moment in the prelude and in book six, right, the kind of famous uh, passage on the imagination. Uh, in some sense, right, we see here, uh, you know, precisely kind of consciousness that it's most uh, destructive, right? It's most sort of world transforming. And this is what, what Wordsworth uh, sort of uh, insists on, right? That this is a moment that shows that the mind uh, can basically take over the natural world and do with it what it will, right? I think there's lots of resonances with Kant, Hegel, Wollstonecraft here. Um, this is a kind of crucial moment, both for me, right, but also for the whole kind of critical tradition, right? The whole kind of uh, tradition of romantic studies uh, comes out of or kind of goes back to this moment in, in the prelude. At the same time, and I'm not, you know, the first to notice this, obviously, uh, there are a lot of other competing uh, sort of forces, right? There are other tendencies in Wordsworth's poetry, uh, the poems of encounter, as they've often been called, right, the kind of great poems of 1807 uh, in, in the poems in two volumes, um, you know, these are really, really interesting uh, texts, right, that, you know, show Wordsworth face to face with nature in a very different way, right, uh, encountered with a nature, again, that he does not control, right, that he does not expect or anticipate, and this is why these are poems of encounter, right? Um, these are uh, uh, moments of appearance for him that, uh, you know, arrive un, uh, unbidden, basically. Uh, uh, these are moments that, again, he is not uh, in, in charge of. So uh, the kind of minute details from the natural world that he's attuned to in these texts, flowers, birds, right? quintessential uh, sort of romantic uh, uh, objects, um, the, the, the uh, 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 fact of their appearance, right, is to me what's really, really fascinating about these texts and uh, uh, the way in which, uh, again, they, they, they make themselves seen, they make themselves felt, right, but in a way that doesn't really uh, sort of contribute to the workings of this apocalyptic imagination, as we might call it. Um, these are, uh, yeah, moments of appearance or encounter that have a very, very different logic. Uh, in, in the book, you know, I call this a kind of accidental revelation. This is a term I'm borrowing from from Thomas De Quincey. Um, but I, I, I do think it kind of captures nicely this sort of uh, chance appearance, right? These chance encounters uh, that, yeah, I think work very, very differently, right? From the sort of, uh, you know, Wordsworth uh, of, you know, much romantic criticism, the, the Wordsworth who, you know, kind of stands in as the sort of, uh, you know, uh, you know, maybe negative or naive face of romanticism, uh, the Wordsworth who, uh, you know, thinks he's talking about nature, but is always just talking about himself. Uh, yeah, I think there's something, uh, you know, very different happening in a lot of these other texts. So this is part of what I'm interested in. And um, in the chapter on Shelley, um, you write that the ethereal atmosphere of mm -hmm. uh, natural philosophy 
profoundly shaped um, Shelley's thoughts. And through his um, engagement of that, the, the idea of the ethereal, he challenges the metaphorical and metaphysical hierarchies um, in his poetry. Uh, would it be possible to talk a little bit about um, the, what is ethereal, I mean, the concept of being ethereal and mm -hmm. Shelley um, with with maybe a, a small example, uses this to um, mount challenge to the thinking of his time. Yeah, my Shelley chapter focuses on his, uh, I would call it a kind of poetic translation or sort of transposition of, of certain debates about ether in, in natural philosophy. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's a term just like as a word that shows up throughout his his poetry, um, ether, ethereal, uh, these are these are terms that he uses constantly. Uh, and so I wanted to really, you know, think seriously about the the kind of philosophical background to this, this uh, uh, kind of seemingly uh, uh, sort of simply poetic uh, category. Um, yeah, I mean, he has read quite a lot of natural philosophy. Uh, uh, this is, uh, you know, kind of well known, right? Shelley is pretty steeped in these uh, uh, debates, uh, texts, you know, by Newton, by Locke, uh, you know, many others, right, um, are uh, texts that he's uh, sort of, uh, uh, you know, intimately familiar with. Um, so there are, you know, kind of direct connections to be to be drawn here. Uh, but part of what I was really interested in doing was, you know, not just thinking about like the influence of these ideas on, on Shelley's poetry, but to think about how he uses poetry and how he uses the kind of language of, of metaphor and extended metaphor in particular to, um, you know, elaborate what I call in the chapter a kind of ethereal poetics, right, to sort of, uh, you know, think differently about the relationship between consciousness and nature, between mind and matter, um, using uh, figurative language, right? So he's trying to, like, put into practice and even to extend the kind of thinking that ether theory does, uh, uh, you know, he's trying to do this in his own poetics. Um, ether theory as a kind of category or as a theory, right, is enormously influential from, you know, the 17th century onward, I would say. <clears throat> it's a way of doing a number of things. It resolves a few inconsistencies, I would say, in the kind of mechanistic theory of, of nature. Uh, there are certain, you know, problems with Newton's theory of gravity that he uh, kind of resolves by appealing to a kind of uh, world surrounding ether, to use Shelley's uh, phrase. Um, it's also a way, uh, again, in uh, natural philosophy, uh, late Enlightenment natural philosophy in particular, um, it's a way of thinking about the relationship between mind and matter, between uh, consciousness and nature, and ways that I think do kind of look forward to the romantic reassessment of this, this problem. And so, yeah, uh, just on the level of content or ideas, I think there are connections here. The Romantics were fascinated by by ether as a, a kind of category, as a as a term. But in in Shelley in particular, right? I think we really do see this interesting kind of poetic transposition or translation of uh, of these ideas, and and that's something that I'm trying to trace trace throughout throughout his work. Uh, you know, I focus on a couple of the long poems, Queen Mab and Prometheus Unbound are the two, you know, sort of real focal points of the discussion. But yeah, I think it's I think it's everywhere for him. And, you know, I mean, one of the things that's, I would say, important to stress, right, is that, you know, on the one hand, this is a kind of challenge to the the sort of dominant mechanistic 
picture of, of nature in his time and uh, before and even afterwards, I think, to a certain extent. Um, but it's a challenge that's often kind of articulated right by the same people who sort of start developing the mechanistic theory of nature. You know, Newton both gives us a kind of mechanistic account of, of the world, um, but he also gives us uh, ether theory as a result, right, uh, uh, as uh, a result of, you know, acknowledging, right, that there are certain problems with his own uh, sort of account, his own theory. And so Shelley is very, very attuned to this in, in ways that I think are are, are really, uh, yeah, really interesting and, and really quite productive for him poetically. Um, you know, there's a great study of precisely this kind of problem by by Carolyn Merchant, the uh, feminist historian of science, uh, who sort of says, you know, on one hand, you know, Newton uh, gives us a vision of, of nature as a kind of dead mechanistic thing, right? On the other hand, he gives us back in the form of ether, uh, a sense that there might be something uh, alive uh, out there, right? That there might be some kind of, uh, you know, vital force, right? Connecting and, and sort of making uh, the natural world hang together. And I think this this is the dimension, right, that Shelley is really kind of fascinated by. Yeah. And uh, since you since we had exchanged this email, I had talked about Shelley becoming a vegetarian. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the fact that he he was a vegetarian, but mm -hmm. then he gave up and started consuming meat again. Mm -hmm. uh, so my question to you is, um, why did he um, I mean, if if this has something to do with the point we have been making, mm -hmm. uh, was there a connection between his his becoming a vegetarian and yeah, if I can say that. Yeah, I mean, his vegetarianism, I think, is actually a kind of you know a sort of important and underappreciated aspect of uh, you know his his thought, and it's you know very relevant to precisely uh, the kinds of issues that I'm I'm thinking about. I write about it a little bit in the book. I mean, it's it's usually a kind of punchline, right? When people talk about Shelley's uh, vegetarianism, it's kind of uh, mostly for laughs. Um, but yeah, I think for him it was a a, a sort of serious matter. Uh, you know for. <laughs> For Shelley, I mean, there are different ways to think about this. Um, you know, he's responding in part to a kind of 18th century luxury debate. Um, he's sort of pointing to meat eating. Uh, he's pointing to kind of unhealthy habits of consumption, right, as part of a, a broader sort of culture of luxury, um, a, a sort of, uh, you know, form of uh, a kind of decadence almost that he's sort of concerned with. And there are many in the 18th century and early 19th century who are concerned, um, yeah, with these sort of new aspects of, of commercial society, early industrial society. Um, so this is part of the picture. I would say more interestingly, uh, he also understands vegetarianism as a kind of uh, prefigurative activity, I would say. Um, it's, it's a sort of way of anticipating uh, what it will be like uh, what, once human beings have been kind of reconciled uh, to the natural world, right? When they have, uh, you know, both acknowledged like the difference uh, between themselves and things in nature, animals, plants and so forth, right? Uh, they've acknowledged this kind of difference uh, and then sort of tried to build a new, uh, more harmonious uh, uh, relation in, in turn, right? Um, so, so for Shelley, right, to be vegetarian, to live according to the vegetable diet, as he, as he calls it, uh, somewhat memorably, right, is to sort of anticipate again, or to sort of, um, you know, put in practice in advance, right, this kind of harmonious uh, possibility or this harmonious form of relation um, that, yeah, really does have a kind of profound utopian force for him. I think the vegans today would be happy to hear something. Like yeah, I mean, I think it's quite compelling, actually. Yeah. Um, since we are at the end of the podcast now, I would um, like 
before we end, I would like to talk about your future and present projects mm -hmm. on right now and what can we hope to read from you in the coming future? Yeah, well, I'm thinking about a lot of things, uh, still kind of following up on, on many of these, uh, you know, basic questions, uh, you know, these problems of action, uh, sort of forms of ethical relation, forms of ethical action uh, are still, you know, very much on my mind. And this is something I kind of turn to in the final uh, chapter of the book on, on Shelley in particular. But I'm trying to think more deeply about these, these questions and, uh, you know, doing it in a largely kind of philosophical way at this point, although I'm sure, uh, you know, romanticism will come back in for me as it always does. Uh, but I've been, you know, working my way through the work of uh, uh, Simone Weil, uh, the philosopher, uh, who I write about a little bit in the book, but who I think, um, you know, articulates a really sort of powerful theory of what she calls non-active action or inactive action, uh, a, a kind of account that I think resonates really strongly, right, with this romantic effort to imagine new ways of being in the world, new ways of uh, engaging harmoniously with, with nature. Uh, and... Uh, yeah, she offers us, uh, you know, to my mind, the kind of fullest and most compelling account of this 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 process. Uh, so that's uh, yeah something I've been I've been working on, uh, you know, quite a lot in the last year or so. Uh, and uh, yeah, hopefully it'll it'll turn into something. Well, I hope to read that book too. And thank <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time today to talk to me. And yeah, thank thank you. I really appreciate the questions.